We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Computer, this is Data. I'm an android. I'm a registered basketball. I was processing all of the information. Processing. It's one of those idiots who believe in analytics. Registered basketball. Analytics was crap. Does not compute. Just because you got good stats doesn't mean you're a good team. <laughs> all right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Lakers Exceptionalism Podcast. My name is Timmy Nomi's Cranjus McBasketball on Twitter, and I am just kind of doing an impromptu watch the Celtics-Hawks game and share some thoughts on Game 3, what I saw on film, and then looking ahead to Game 4. Lakers won. Lakers got out to a big, big, big early lead, and it was chipped away at over time, but the Lakers were fairly in control of the game. We're able to finish out and win by, what, a 10? Um, some really solid performances from a number of guys. AD bounced back. D'Lo bounced back. D'Lo's passing was very good. The Lakers leaned into their double drag attack, which I just right now finished a uh, live breakdown of, so go check that out on YouTube. Uh, by the time you're hearing this, either you just missed it and you're in the stream now, or it should be up on YouTube by the time the podcast folks are listening to this. So go check that out. It was a fun back and forth. We saw each team trade some tactical blows and we saw adjustments on top of adjustments. It was cool. It was fun. We called it out live during the game stream. And uh, so go check that out if you want to learn a little bit more. I've got a, a list of notes on this one. I thought the Lakers played really well. They won in a lot of areas. They had some really strong performances from a number of players. There were some weak performances from some other guys. John Morant put up 45 points, 19 of those in transition. And we'll talk about him. And if you adjust the game plan against him, we'll talk about if I'm worried about the Lakers letting the lead slip late in the game. We'll talk about where the Lakers actually need to make some adjustments because they got out outplayed, a little outcoached in certain areas of the game. All of that here coming up next. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. 
Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, so let's start with the three-point shooting. It was a big big item in game one. Lakers shot really well in their threes. Game two, didn't hear about it because the Lakers didn't win and didn't have an individual guy go crazy. Game three, Memphis shot 33%, Lakers shot 25%, and yet the Lakers were dominating this game from start to finish, just about. There were stretches where, yeah, Memphis was out playing LA, but at those points in time, the Lakers had quite a lead on the, the scoreboard, and looking at you know time and score, they were in pretty good shape. What stands out to me is how well the Lakers have done each game of this series when it comes to the percentage of their three-point attempts, not the makes, but just the attempts for the Lakers coming from good shooters versus bad shooters as uh, opposed to Memphis and, and how things have looked for them. So if we look game by game in game one, if we look at the D or F three-point shot making caliber players for each team, uh, and and for the Lakers, I included LeBron in the good shooter category. I know he on the this year doesn't grade out well, but pretty consistently prior to this year had been very good and recently has been much better than the he had like a big slump earlier in the year. So I included him in the good shooter category. If you included him in the bad shooter category, that would change things. But everybody else has been fairly consistent. Hey, they were good last year. They're good this year. They were bad last year. They're bad this year. So no real judgment calls there. When we look at the percentage of three-pointer attempts from those poor shooters, for game one, 27% of the Lakers' threes were from bad shooters versus 56% for Memphis, edge Lakers. Game two, 33% of the Lakers' threes were from those bad shooters versus 58% for Memphis. Again, big edge to the Lakers. And then in game three, This went up a little bit because AD took a couple more threes. 36% of the Lakers' three-point attempts were from those D or F caliber three-point shot-making guys. That's adjusting for degree of difficulty versus 67% for Memphis. Two two out of every three threes that the Grizzlies took were from bad three-point shooters. Ja Morant took a bunch of them. He has not been a good three-point shooter on the season. But just in general, it's not Bain and Kennard and uh, catch-and-shoot threes from Tyus Jones. It's... Dylan Brooks jacking up threes. John Morant jacking up threes. Like, the Lakers are pushing Memphis towards attempts from their weaker shooters. And over a seven, you know, over a one game series, anything can happen. Over a seven game series, that's the kind of process dominance that leads to strong results. And three pointers are a big area of today's game at the NBA level, at the college level, at the high school level, wherever you're looking. And. The Lakers being able to win the process battle when it comes to threes is very impressive to me, and I'm, I'm, I'm pleased to see that. Moving to the Lakers' post-offense. This has been an area where we've seen some struggle. We uh, In this game, the Lakers had 15 scoring possessions from the post. They had a bunch last game. First game, they had a decent number. A bunch last game. like over I think It was like 26 or something like that. Um, with with Memphis switching a lot, the Lakers got to a lot of post pins or just looking to post up and attack from there. This game, 15, not tiny, not a bunch. Uh, at And they got 12 points out of that, 0.8 points per possession. Not very good, uh, not horrific, but not very good. And what I saw on film was that Memphis adjusted. Rather than only sending help from the baseline for the first time in the series, they were more consistently sending help from the strong side. They were doubling strong side on the dribble, not on the catch. And they still kind of had their box alignment behind that. And the Lakers didn't counter this well until late third quarter. So that's an area to clean up. That is an unexpected... I mean, it makes sense. Memphis had put the same two things on film the whole season in terms of how they're going to help. And the Lakers showed that they clearly understood how to attack it in game two. So I understand Memphis switching it up. 
it's now back on the Lakers to figure out how do we approach this in game three or game four, I mean. Because for this game, it was an advantage for Memphis and it slowed down the Lakers post attack. On the series now, AD shooting, what was the number? Four for 17, I believe is what I what I grabbed and tweeted out. Not very good. In 1v1s or attacking help, his shot in the post has not been very good. I know a big portion of that, a big, big portion of that was during game two where he got hit in the face or hit in the eye. So, you know, some leeway there potentially. Uh, there's some variance, of course, baked in as well. This wasn't one guy. This isn't, oh, Tillman's locked him down or Jackson's locked him down. It's been a mix of players. Tillman, Jackson, Brooks, Altama, like a mix of guys, frequently more than one guy, I, I should add. But Memphis, for a lot of the game, did a really good job keeping AD from getting to the rim with his post attacks. And they've done well with that in the series. It's been a lot of fadeaway jumpers. The Lakers did a really good job. Uh, so, so that's an area that the Lakers need to adjust. Where the Lakers did do a really good job in this game later in the game was getting AD attacking on the move off of those wide pin down screens or off of kind of how we saw uh, Memphis, um, I'm sorry, Minnesota attack with Carl Anthony Towns in the playing game. You know, secondary break, just kind of dribble in front of AD and then pitch it back to him and let him attack on the move. We saw him score a few times, get a couple very good attacks at the rim against Jackson, drew a foul on one of them. Um, that's him able to use his ball handling, able to use the force he can generate and attacking quickly with better vision of the court. The Memphis defense was still very much crashing down, so I think perhaps there was a player or two where passing out was was a better option. But we saw AD attack quite well and generate some really good looks, attacking, you know, catching on the move, which is something I was I've been calling for. I'm glad we got to see it because we had not seen too much of it prior to that in the series. With the Lakers pick and roll offense, they had 34 scoring possessions, an uptick of. Uh, an uptick from the the prior game, and they scored a point per possession on those. So it okay, not not awful. That's fine. Um, I talked about double drag at the top. They ran it a lot. They did well with it. They scored. If you actually remove the Dennis pick and roll uh, attempts with it, because it's not a really good series for him, and you remove the one play where the ball was just stripped from Reeves before he got into it, like when the Lakers actually ran double drag with Reeves or with D'Lo, they scored one point three one points per possession with it, which rocks. Uh, overall, when you add in the couple shooter possessions where he either just made the wrong decision, well, actually, I think in both cases, he, well, one, he made the wrong decision. The other one, you can, you can debate it. Um, 1.06. So, okay. A little bit better than their norm, but when they were really cooking, like they scored five out of five times to open the game with that attack. And I want to see more of it. We saw a good back and forth. The Lakers show they know how to attack pretty much whatever you can possibly throw at it from a from the Memphis side. So, I would be, you know, keep pushing it. I didn't I, I didn't leave that game after looking at the film saying, "Oh, you know what? Memphis won. We'll have to move on." No, keep keep using this. Um we also saw the Lakers go to some spread step seal with the north-south kind of step up ball screen looking to hit the seal against switching. We saw them attack switching with their wing ball screens into a seal looking for lobs. They did this several times. They had actually two missed dunk attempts from this. They got a foul at the rim. I think they scored once off of it as well. Um, they got some open threes from this set with the defense needing to really stunt hard from a double gap to try to enable them to stay home on the roll man while also stopping the drive. So the Lakers have done a really good job creating empty side attacks where a roller is, you know, run into the rim and is a lob threat. And the defense has opted to, their approach from a Memphis side has been, let's do what we can to stick on that roller and take that away. And then we'll try to send help from the next perimeter player over to help defend the drive. And then try to scramble and recover to shooters on the weak side. I want to see the Lakers do better with sticking their best shooters in that position. So if Memphis does stunt, you know, I'm getting Austin Reeves threes, D'Lo threes, Malik Beasley threes. I want more of that. You know, Rui's done a really good job on the season. He hasn't been one of their better three-point shooters. But I think you you want to just stick your the best guy you got out there as a three-point shooter in that spot. Or if they're sticking them in the corner, that puts the Lakers in a good situation if the defense tries to tag from the weak side low man on, on a roll or trap the box against a drive. So 
the Lakers pick and roll offense did well. They found some concepts that worked. I want to see them continue leaning into that and doing well. I'm going to take a quick break. I'll be back in like five seconds. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, so the next thing we're going to talk about is LeBron ISOs. LeBron isolations had zero points over the first two games of the series, over three total attempts. This is perimeter isolations. From the post, his post-ups have generated 18 points on 10 attempts, including pass outs. Just blistering efficiency. Um, This game, from a perimeter ISO standpoint, he had seven points on six possessions. Good stuff. From my perspective, as long as his foot is bothering him and he doesn't have the same explosiveness, I would much rather him hammer the inside game with Memphis switching often and, you know, attack inside out. He's a really good passer. If they send help, he's going to find the right man. And the Lakers have done a really good job countering help based on where it's sent. So I would like to see more LeBron, like kind of old man LeBron offense starting from the inside rather than him trying to beat guys off the dribble from the perimeter. Now, when he's a cutter or he's attacking in transition, he's really good, like barreling at the rim. That's fantastic. But in a neutral context, just beat a guy, beat the guy in front of you. I have less confidence in the current form of him than I did a couple of years ago or than I did earlier this season when he looked a bit healthier. So something to keep an eye out for, but he did do a much better job this game at creating opportunities for himself and scoring well on those. He's drawn a couple fouls. The Lakers actually ran a set play to create most of these looks for him and try to clear out space so we can get a true 1v1. And it worked well. So I appreciate the Lakers understanding we got to be able to have LeBron as a 1v1 guy being a threat in this series. So they ran sets that gave him that opportunity. And then of course, late clock, you know, he can get to that if he needs to as well. But Trying to elevate with the set plays, I thought was a smart move. So good work there for the Lakers. They've they've countered that help well. We saw Memphis try to load up on his ISOs a couple times, and the, and the Lakers just kind of removed guys, set screens, or cut it, cut to uh, create gaps to drive. The last part of the Lakers' offense I want to talk about, I guess schematically, is the fact that the off-screen offense has has kind of disappeared. It has disappeared. We continue to see Memphis generate off-screen looks on their end and be have decent efficiency with it. With LA, they've ditched it. We saw Malik Beasley top-locked. We saw Malik Beasley face-guarded off-ball in games one and two for a lot of plays. And the Lakers just said, okay, you know, we're done. We're not going to try that anymore. I didn't see off-screen attempts with Beasley this game three. And I wouldn't be giving up on that. And here's why. With Memphis top locking, you can counter that. There are set plays the Lakers can run to counter that, or they can just, you know, back cut off of it, which they've done a couple times. Once Schroeder found him and he scored at the rim, there were like two or three other times he back cut and didn't get the ball, but it was open and just Dennis just didn't see him. Uh, I rewatched all of Dennis's playoff minutes and left very frustrated with his with his playmaking. But what I think about with this is there are ways to attack that with how Memphis is playing. If the Lakers could get that going as an extra element to their offense, it would be very useful. If we think back to how Memphis was defending the double drag, it was a lot of drop coverage or staying home on the screener. Um, In any of the drop, running the Oklahoma action could be really valuable. Or if they're just going to stay home on the screener and they just completely vacate and not try to cover at all or contain at all, I should say, 
that's going to open up driving lanes. So trying to open up your double drag Oklahoma when Memphis is in drop, I think would be good in general. If Memphis has the Lakers number when it comes to stopping their off screen stuff, their staggers and their down screens. Okay. That is, that worries me if that's the primary form of offense, because then you're just mucking things up. Where did, where do we go from here? If it's a weak side kind of secondary attack and Memphis is, is locking up, locking it up. The reason they're locking it up is because they've got, you know, all two or three defenders involved in defending that action really engaged in stopping it. And so that could be bad for Malik Beasley shots, but it's going to be good for LeBron or AD shots because that means those guys can't be help defenders. Memphis has been very heavily reliant on sending help defense this series against post-ups, against ISOs, against ball screens. They have very, you know, leaned very heavily into that. If all of a sudden, hey, they're not stunting anymore or they're not tagging anymore, we're going to see more lobs for AD. We're going to see more 1v1 post-ups for LeBron and AD. We're going to see ISOs get to the rim more frequently. I want to revitalize the usage of these actions and understand that, hey, even if the action itself isn't getting the shot off, it can elevate other forms of your offense. So try to counter it. Counter it with the back cuts. Counter it with the sets that you've got for overplays. And if that isn't working, it's still something that is tying up help defenders, which, you know, if LeBron, AD, and D'Lo and Reeves or let's say three of those four guys can play 3v3 or 2v2 against two defenders instead of two defenders plus help or three defenders plus help, You, I like my odds. I think the Lakers are in a much better situation. So from an offensive standpoint, that's what I was seeing at a team level, looking individually. AD did a really good job getting going this game. We did see him struggle in the post again. So it wasn't that his post-up suddenly just completely opened up for him. That wasn't that wasn't really it. So that is still an area of opportunity for him. Hopefully he's able to go into game four and, and do a good job and be able to generate more advantages and just kind of hit those shots at the rim. Like he's been able to get some good shots. He just hasn't hit them. When we look at the point distribution for AD in this game, he had seven points on post-ups. He did better. Um, still not all that efficient, but he did better. He had four points on putbacks, two points off of a handoff. Uh, that was the like top of the key, dribble at him, pitch it back, have him attack 1v1. We saw four points off of rolls out of the double drag set. We saw nine points in transition and then five points spotting up. He had a catch and shoot three. He had, what was the other play? I think it wasn't quite a roll, but he, he was around the elbow catching and shooting. So he was able to add value with his jump shot, which hasn't been the most sustainable form of offense. He had zero spot up points in the series prior to yesterday. And then in transition, which we know is super finicky, he had 11 total points in the series from games one and two and then nine yesterday. So I don't look at zero in ISO, zero on dump offs or cuts. I'm not looking at this AD performance and saying, oh, wow, look at all the things the Lakers did to open him up. I think he still needs to do a better job. The Lakers, the post part of this, he was able to muscle some of those in there and draw some fouls too. But even there, like there's opportunity to to do a better job. Um, he scored 0.636 points per possession in the post yesterday. That's not very good. So opening that up is going to be important. Continuing to do smart things with your sets to open up roles is going to be important, but I don't want to have to count on spot ups and transition. AD needs to be able to be more of a monster on the boards, in the post, on dump offs, on rolls. And then you can get some of the spot up as, you know, a little cherry on top or transition. It's going to be there sometimes. It's not going to be there other times. So when it comes to AD's individual scoring, I still think the Lakers have work to do to get him going. And we talked about some of those ways to do so with him catching on the move or with the, you know, countering the post help, things like that. With Memphis sending more help from the strong side with a double, that's going to open up more opportunity to just kick the ball out for threes or cut that player and hit them on the cut. So, so you've got opportunities there. You just need to be smart, identify where the help is coming from and then find the open player. But AD, despite everything I just talked about, he had 31 points. So he was the Lakers leading scorer. He did it in a lot of ways and we'll take that. You need that. It was a good performance from him. 17 rebounds. He was a monster defending the rim. We'll talk about that a little bit later, but offensively did a really good job 
get four offensive rebounds and was hitting his shots eight for 10 at the free throw line. Reeves, I thought had an okay game for him. Nothing special, nothing awful. Drawed some fouls, had the foul merchant stuff going on, but was, you know, hitting shots, getting and ones instead of just two free throws. Uh, I thought he played decently. Vando was a complete non-factor offensively in this game. D'Lo, I thought his, you know, his shooting wasn't very good, but he hit his, all of his free throws and he was operating really well as a passer out of the Lakers sets and he got other players involved. So I thought he had an okay game for him. LeBron was strong as a free throw shooter, as a two point shooter, wasn't hitting his threes, but continues to be, you know, a, a very solid contributor, um, had some superstar shots. But we can see even more from him. I, you know, 25, 9, and 5, he could have done better. But he had a decent game. I thought Dennis, offensively, he he had three assists. But I was really struggling with seeing some of the passing reads he didn't make or turning the ball over when he was trying to make some of the passes. That was frustrating. Um, Brown didn't give us much. Beasley didn't give us much. Gabriel didn't give us anything in, offensively in his one minute. Fought on the boards. But, you know, just it was a minute. So there wasn't much opportunity. Rui. Again, two for two from deep, two for two at the free throw line, four for eight on his two pointers, hitting some like bailout shots, some late clock offense. It's just like insane how he's suddenly just hitting every three. It's been fantastic. Not something I think we can bank on for four playoff series, but you got to enjoy it every second you got it. So shout out to him for another really solid scoring performance. He's getting 10 plus points like every game in the playoffs. It's great. So that's what the Lakers offense is looking like. I think they've got work to do in unlocking AD a bit more in terms of attacking smarter out of the post now that Memphis has adjusted their post help. They were doing a good job, but Memphis changed the type, the help type, so now you need to attack that better. I think one thing you can do when it comes to the Dennis playmaking thing is maybe you try to set up more Reeves on ball minutes with the bench lineups instead of Dennis. Play Reeves a bit more. Um, let me take a look at the minutes for this game. So Reeves had, thir- eh, Reeves had 35, D'Lo had 31, Dennis had 23. Yeah, I, I LeBron 36. So you could look to get LeBron as a passer more and you just operate a little bit differently. You could try to take some of those Reeves 35 minutes and, and have him be more of that on-ball guy. And I thought he did a really good job when he was. Um, Dennis is just a tricky guy to have off ball because he's not the best three-point shooter, isn't really adding much from a cutting standpoint. His screen setting is not good. He has some of the right behaviors in terms of trying to set a screen, but then he just he doesn't hold his screens. He doesn't set very good screens. He'll just kind of check the box like, hey, I was here, um, but not really making good contact. So I think it's a tricky thing the Lakers will look to monitor. You do want to keep him in the rotation. I think you just want to try to make the reads easy for him or – put him in situations to succeed the best you can and, and trust that he's going to be able to find some of these guys that are open because they're there. I think it's just like, you know, after a time, you know, during a timeout, pull out the tablet, show him, hey, look, when you're seeing this, that means the lob's there. Throw the lob. Or if the stunt's coming hard at you, that means this guy's probably open. So I think he can do a bit better. I, you know, he's a bas- he's an NBA player. He's, he's a point guard. He's not a point guard from a playmaking standpoint, but he's got to be able to make some of these reads. And then the off-screen stuff. I think the Lakers have an opportunity to get that going. We saw LA's offense do pretty well there in that first quarter, 35 points. And in the third quarter, 35 points. But then 18 in the second, 23 in the fourth. You got to be better than that. Like, the defense did a decent job, but the offense had two quarters of 23 or fewer points. And that's that's not going to cut it. I know in the fourth quarter they were sitting on the ball a bit. But in the second quarter, we saw things get mucked up. There's There's, you know... Up to one, as a coaching staff, you still want to be able to point at things and say, hey, we got to work on this. I do, you know, big picture, the Lakers did a great job. They had some great performances, huge win to go up 2-1 in this series. And if they can win this game four tomorrow on Monday, absolutely in control. And a lot of that has to do with the defense, which I'm going to take another quick break and then we will transition right into talking about. All right, so let's talk about the Lakers defense. They held Memphis to a like a playoff low, I think, ever with nine points there in that first quarter. Uh, Some of that was Memphis just missing shots. Some of that was really, really good Lakers defense. It's a To get that few points, it's a mix. It will be a mix. You're never going to have a 
defensive performance in a quarter against an NBA team where they should expect to get nine points. It's a mix of strong defense and poor shot making. We saw Memphis heat up a bit from there, but on the game, I thought the Lakers did a really good job. And when we dig into the various areas, I really love the process. From a post standpoint, Memphis had zero points on post-ups. They had three scoring possessions, nothing, nothing at all. Sending help, it worked well. Wow, there's a play where AD was on Jackson. He had him locked down. The Lakers were uh, sending a high double and then bumping behind it. So they've moved to a different help type and Memphis had nothing for it. So they just kind of stayed away from the post. In Jackson's three games of this series, he's had 15 post-up points, a career high, then two, and then zero. And for much of the series, you know, even, even with the two and the zero, it wasn't that AD's been on him and needing to lock him down. It's when the Lakers send help, this guy's got nothing. Between his passing and the, the Memphis at a team level countering post help, it's just not been successful. And until they prove otherwise, just keep, you know, stick with what you're doing. AD being on Tillman when Tillman and Jackson are in together has been fantastic for allowing AD to be at the rim and disrupting everything seemingly at the rim. Uh, and then when Jackson tries to post up, just send help and you're in, you're in fine shape. AD was only on Jackson for 32.8% of the time this game. He's good 1v1. The other 67% of the time, you just need to send help and you're fine. So this was a huge advantage for the Lakers off or Lakers defense, I should say against an area that was a big problem in game one. Now, for the Memphis pick and roll offense, we again saw really strong defense against like Brooks and Jones. They had their their ball screens, nine of them had two points. Awful efficiency. Against John Morant, we continued to see the high drop. But then on top of that, we started to see the Lakers go with what I was recommending pre-series and start weaking some screens. And not letting Ja run pick and rolls to his left. He was running if he was running a pick and roll to his left, you jump out as a ball screen defender and ball handler defender and you try to make him reject. If he's taking a pick and roll to his right, you just go around it. Go under it, go over it if you need to, go under it when you can, but you're not trying to make him reject those. They just try to keep him away from his left. His hand was clearly bothering him. Credit to him for trying to tough it out, but the Lakers did a really good job from a coverage standpoint. Um, he had 11 points on 14 possessions with his ball screens. And with several of these, it was him hitting pull-up threes, which he normally doesn't do. Uh, there were a couple moving screens. Uh, actually, consistently some moving screens. When the Lakers were trying to go under a jaw screen, like let's say Tillman was setting a screen on Dennis in front of jaw. Dennis would move to go under the screen. Tillman would back up with him, kind of like he's a pass blocker. And, and like not let you go under. If you were to go under, it would take an extra like second or so. So I think on the Lakers side, you need to point that out to the refs. You need to tell your guys, hey, run into those hard and fall down. And let's get some extra fouls on Jackson or Tillman. Because those are not legal plays. And if those are illegal plays, that completely changes the way you can you can screen in basketball. So I, you just need to, don't don't be soft running around those. You know, hit them, fall down if you, if if they're in a, an illegal space position to be setting a screen and you are going to do you know if that is taken away as a tactic as it should be that lowers the effectiveness as well but 11 points on 14 possessions not very good that is what is that 0.79 points per possession that's that's really crappy from your lead ball handler who his primary thing he does is ball screens the one big advantage or i guess the one big adjustment on the lakers side in this game three that they made had to do with Desmond Bain ball screens. In game two, with Jaw out, we saw Memphis lean much more heavily into Bain ball screens, especially later in the game. And the Lakers were putting guys, they're putting the, the screener defender at the level of the screen. They were hedging and taking away the immediate pull-up threes. I understand why. But what they what that then was giving up was a numbers advantage off ball. And we saw Xavier Tillman eat as a score and as a short roll playmaker in these opportunities. Um, it was just, it was winning basketball for Memphis. The Lakers were not in a very good spot. This was something that pre-series I said, hey, you could do the high drop or switch potentially as a backup. With Jaw out, I was more interested in maybe switching. Uh, Bain ball screens against switching on the season score. Like, what was it? 0.86 points per direct possession, uh, direct scoring chance on the season or the regular season. So, with draw back, I think the high drop makes sense. That's what the Lakers went to. 
And he scored four points on five possessions and had nothing as a passer out of these ball screens because the Lakers weren't hedging, so they didn't need to rotate behind it. And there were actually a couple plays he confused and misdiagnosed the Lakers' high drop as a hedge, assumed rotations were happening, and made skip passes to guys who were just covered. So I really like this from the Lakers. It took away that pipeline for opportunities for this team to just, whenever they want, generate a numbers advantage. Down their star player in game two, they were able to generate numbers advantages whenever they wanted because they were able to run these ball screens for Bain effectively. And he's a pretty good passer. So I loved that from LA. I thought that made a difference. And when you think about like, it's not just Bain that it makes a difference on. When we think about game two, who's the guy that really stood out for Memphis that scored a bunch and was like, wow, this didn't see this coming. It was Avery Tillman. He had 22 points, 10 for 13 shooting. He had some transition. He outran AD a couple times. He had some rolls. But a lot of his impact came in those short roll situations as a passer or scoring off of the 4v3 or the 3v2. This completely eliminated those. I saw Memphis writers on Twitter saying, you know, why would you go away from this volume for, for Xavier Tillman? It's because it wasn't an ISO play. It wasn't an off-screen play. It wasn't a post-up. He's creating based on what the defense is doing against a different attack. And because the Lakers changed things up schematically, all of a sudden, Tillman's a non-factor offensively in, in that area because that avenue, that situation that he's so good at, we don't have to worry about anymore. So I thought that was a big change. That was really important. Um, the Lakers continue to lock this area of the game down. The number one thing Memphis does, they fix that game two issue with the Bane ball screens. We continue to not see Memphis sealing drops or running stack action or running Oklahoma or Veer actions. They're missing opportunity. They are leaving points on the table. I think this is a really poor approach against the Lakers running drop and high drop. And I, I, I've got no problem with it. If, if Memphis isn't going to make those right adjustments, game after game, that just makes things easier for the Lakers. So this was a huge, huge advantage area for LA in this game for their defense. Let's talk about John Morant specifically. So 45 points, pretty good game. A really good game, 45 points. 19 of those points were in transition. And I'm glad his uh, big transition outburst game came in a game that they lost anyway. Because uh, if they won this game by like five and he had 19 points in transition, it would be really frustrating. He was blanked in ISO. He was scoring like 0.85 or what it was, points per scoring possession in ball screens. Um, so for him, 0.85, when you include the pass outs, like 0. 0.7, 0. 0.73 or so. Uh, in the series, he's at 0. 0.733 points per possession in ball screens, including pass outs. For all of the playoffs, he's third. He ranks third among all players in scoring attempts per game. And he's among the worst from an efficiency standpoint. The Lakers are locking this down. It is his number one form of offense. It's locking, it's being locked down. He did hit six threes. A career, he tied a career high also uh, from a game, I think, what, two seasons ago? Also against the Lakers? A career high, six threes. He's a bad three point shooter. He's a bad pull three point shooter. He's an okay catch and shoot three point shooter. I think you want to put a hand up and contest if he's trying to take and catch and shoot three, but you're not selling out. You're not closing out hard. You're closing out short. You're trying to defend the rim. And this guy being. Again, in the playoffs, an 89th percentile efficiency jump shooter is not his game. That is not him. He's being used so much more as a jump shooter than his norm, and that is good for the Lakers. He's not going to score six. He's not going to hit six threes again. Absolute outlier game. You do not change your game plan to take those away and then open up his drives. Absolutely. If I'm picking my poison, if he's going to go out and, and Memphis is going to beat the Lakers because he hit six threes or seven threes, so be it. But for a guy who, as we've mentioned previously, was already getting the highest quality pull-up three-point attempts in the NBA, this isn't new for him. He just has never done this. It's not like, oh, wow, well, the Lakers have made it too easy for him. No, everybody's making it this easy for him. And he didn't do this a single other time this season. And he's only done it once other time, one other time in his whole career. So play the odds. The odds are heavily in your favor. Make him repeat this performance. He scored... 0.53 points per shot more than expected on jumpers this series. Keep giving him those shots. He's, that's not That will not continue. When that regression hits for him on his jumpers, and when AD's regression hits on his post-ups, we might see a, a blowout that's sustained 
in a future game in this series. The Lakers are, they've got points that they're leaving out on the table from a shot making standpoint. And Memphis is overperforming from a shot making standpoint for certain guys in certain areas. Stay the course, keep the weak and high drop on him. You're in perfect position for his pick and roll attack. Make him be a long range jump shooter from mid range or from three. And if you lose, you lose. But that is the best way to, to be defending him. And what he does in one game does not change your approach. If this was a rookie and you don't have film on him and it's the second game of the season, okay, maybe you change your approach. We're in the playoffs. He's played a lot of games in his career and in this season. You know who he is. You know what he's good at. So, John Morant put up 45 points. In the half court, though, the Lakers did a pretty good job. And he overperformed on his jumpers. I'm okay to keep playing that game. He can he can pl- keep playing slots with those. He's going to lose more often than not. And so you just got to tr- tighten up the transition defense. Part of that is offense. Part of that is sprinting back. That's a simpler fix to me than like, oh, no, we can't defend his ball screens. No, you're doing a great job with his ball screens. You've done a great job with his ISO. So really good shot. Really, really, you know, Ellie's in a really good position there. Let's talk about AD's excellence, defending the rim. He is having his best defensive series as a Laker thus far when it comes to defending the rim. He has his best field goal percentage against him, defending shots at the rim. Only 42.3% of shots he's contesting are going in against him. That's super low, super, super low. At the rim, not not threes, not mid-range. At the rim, 42%. The difference between the expected field goal percentage against him at the rim and the actual field goal percentage is 21 points different. That's, again, the best of his career in any series. And this is well above what he was doing in the regular season. So I don't... You know, you can you can point at these performances and say, oh, he should have been a defensive player of the year candidate. He wasn't playing like this in the, in the regular season. The, you know, this is a new level for him. This is fantastic. His numbers don't look anything like this in the regular season. But he's been absolutely fantastic. 21% below expectations this series. In the Phoenix series 2020 and 2021, he was about 11% uh, better than, or he held opponents 11% below expectations. Against Miami in the finals, 19.7% below Against Denver in the Western Conference Finals, opponent shot 2.6% better than him at the rim than expected. Houston in that that playoff run, 0.8% below. So not a huge disruption impact. And then in the Portland series, that first round matchup, that title year, 15.5% disruption. So he's had, what, four of those six series, double digits disruption. Three of those six series, 15% or more disruption. But this has been his best one from an effectiveness standpoint, but also what makes this so impressive is the volume associated with it. 8.7 attempts at the rim per game he's contesting is a lot. If I just rattle off these other numbers for the other series, 4.6, 6.8, 5.4, 6.0, 5.0. He's at almost nine per game he's attempting or contesting at the rim. And if you just look, if you if you get rid of game two and you just look at games one and game three, he's, he's contesting 10 and a half a game. And when we look at the percentage of shots taken at the rim when he's on court, just overall, not just when he's contesting, of that, you know, of those shots at the rim, he's contested 49% of them. That is a career high for him in a playoff series. In that title run, he's at 26, 28, 28, and then 47% in the finals against Phoenix, 33%. So 49% is super impressive. He's everywhere. This tells us he is everywhere. Him contesting this many shots is good in general, but then on top of that, he's disrupting the hell out of these shots. And the expected field goal percentage also is fairly good. It's it's not all that high. For Jackson, he has not been as disruptive as his regular season numbers, but then also the expected field goal percentage against him at the rim is really high. The Lakers are getting great shots at the rim against him. They're putting him out of position or they're going into or through his body and just it's night and day, his room protection and AD's room protection this series in terms of the situations they're being asked to defend in. And AD's really taken advantage. If you look game by game, and I tweeted this out if you want to go check that out. In game one, AD contested 73% of the shots that were taken at the rim when he was on the court. 14% disruption. In game two, that dropped to 29%, but he had 25% disruption. Game three, 52%, and he had 24% disruption. So, He's been super disruptive the past two games at insane amounts. And in games one and three, he's 
been contesting a lot of shots at the rim. Game two, though, not as many. And the reason for that had to do with early in the game, him being deployed on Jaron Jackson Jr. in the Jackson plus Tillman lineups and Memphis saying, all right, if you're going to stick him there, we're going to stick Jackson on the perimeter. Take AD away from the rim and then just run our normal stuff just with Jackson as a spacer. And that worked well. And we saw them put up 30 points in the first quarter. And then the Lakers made an adjustment. And from there, his his frequency of defending shots at the rim got much better. He was getting more blocks. And, and so we saw LA figure that out, fix it themselves. They, they made a misstep, but they fixed it. I don't think we're going to see that again. So unless Memphis finds ways to get him away from defending the rim, LA's in great, sh- in great shape. And we did see Memphis try. We saw Memphis try to run some exit screens with Tillman as a screener. Uh, I think once they got a shot off from it, I don't believe it went in another time it wasn't looked at, but little things like that where try to not let him roam by using Tillman as a screener for shooters. And they've got shooters with Kennard, with Bain. One or two of them are on court pretty much at all times. So if I were Memphis, that's what I'd be looking to do and make AD wrong, make AD out of position and give Ja or whoever it is, Jones or Brooks, those guys who are playing against the drop, Probably not Bain because he's, oh no, I guess Bain as well. Yeah, because he's facing drop down. Against any of those guys, give them a good kick out three-point option with an off-screen look with AD out of position as he's defending the run. That's what I'd be looking to do. That would be the adjustment to keep an eye out for next game. And if that happens, then you have to adjust from there. So that's what things are looking like for me defensively. Ellie's in pretty good shape. Ball screens, great shape. Post offense for Memphis, great shape. Defending Jaw in general, great shape. Defending Jackson, great shape. Defending Tillman, they've cut the water off. Brooks, keep shooting, buddy. Um, Desmond Bain, they've made the one adjustment they need to. He's going to get some off-screen stuff here and there, but Austin Reeves is doing a great job on him. So just defensively, LA's at this point in time, the I guess it's, it's Memphis's turn to adjust. On the offensive side of the ball for LA, there are some things where it's their turn to make the, the tweak. But big picture... Most of the tactical battles currently favor LA and the onus is on Memphis to make an adjustment to regain that high ga- high ground. And you could still, you know, win an area without having the high ground. You could see poor execution or just great shot making or poor shot making. But the process side is what generally is going to win out over seven games. With the, with the talent LA has on the roster, as long as you're winning that tactical battle... I, you know, you're probably not going to get crazy low shot making for you or crazy high shot making for the opponent over a seven game series. So that's how I'm seeing things thus far from a rotation standpoint. We did see Wendy Gabriel get into the game for one minute, 11 seconds at the end of the first quarter. This was when I was hoping to see him play. This is when I asked to see him play. Um, I didn't get a pot up. I was traveling, but I did do a spaces. And if you check that out, you, you heard that feedback from me. He did get in. There was nothing I saw on live or rewatching the film that made me think, oh no, this is a bad idea. Or like, oh my goodness, this guy needs to play all the time. It was, you know, just super low sample size. Not not all that much that was notable. What I continued to see though afterwards, after he came out of the game for the start of the second quarter, was that the Lakers ran that small group. They had LeBron, Rui, Brown, Reeves, and Dennis. And defensively, they don't have size. They don't have as much rebounding. They don't have as much rib protection. And offensively, the offense just got so mucked up. They don't, they just don't have a, a real role, man. Having like Troy Brown role versus having Wendy Gabriel role makes a big difference. You know, for as much as the Lakers ran actions in this game with AD that, hey, he was open on lobs, slipping or sealing, you can't do that with these small lineups. They're not lob threats. Getting a guy like Gabriel that can add that element to your offense, it allows you to actually use like 50% of the playbook that you otherwise can't leverage. So understand how limited you're making your offense, how the offense just then becomes ISO or just LeBron inverted ball screens. And Memphis has done a pretty good job defending those. So I would look to get Gabriel in for some more minutes. I would take Brown out of that lineup. And I would want Reeves getting some more opportunities as a playmaker. Um, This group should be able to do better. And the defense, when the Lakers are without AD and Gabriel in this series, has been getting decimated as well. 
not a statistically significant sample. I'm not saying, oh, this is exactly how it'll be, but so far it's not gone well. They've played 58 minutes thus far through three games without both AD and Gabriel. 130 defensive rating. You just, you see it. You see the lack of size. You see the lack of rebounding. You see the lack of rim protection. I want Bamba or Gabriel to play rather than staying spawn between the two of those. I think Gabriel makes more sense because of his offensive rebounding prowess, because of his finishing. Finishing is very good. A minus versus a D plus for, for Bamba on the season is rim shot making. From a defensive rebounding standpoint, they've actually been pretty comparable. And from a rim protection standpoint, they've been quite comparable as well. And that may surprise you when you look at just, you know, on paper, one guy's taller, one guy's got a bigger wingspan. But we, I mean, we kind of, we've seen this. This shouldn't be a big surprise. Bamba on paper has been better than Bamba in reality. The idea of Mo Bamba has, you know, he's, he, that's a better guy than what we've actually seen on court. So if he bulks up a bit more and he's able to get a, just a tad quicker with his rotations and be in better position, I think we'll see him be more effective in these two areas. But when he's not winning on the boards and all, all that well, or about at the same level as Gabriel and his rim protection is at the same caliber as Gabriel, Gabriel gives you so much more offensively. And when you look at what Bamba would do offensively, because he's not a post threat, he's not really punishing mismatches. And on top of that, Memphis is sending help and he's not the best passer. Offensively, Bamba will effectively just be a stationary shooter guarded by whoever Memphis wants. And maybe they'll pick and pop with him. But that's, that's really what you're looking at. The Memphis major switch and then send help. Like they're already switching and sending help frequently. So I, I just don't, the, tactically, it's not the best fit. I think on paper in a vacuum, Bamba and Gabriel, it's more of a toss up. But when applied to this series, I think you gotta lean one in, or at least I am. And we've, that's what we saw the Lakers go with. Again, just for a minute, give me like three minutes. Like have that full span where AD's sitting between the end of the first, beginning of the second. Give Gabriel an opportunity there. Give him like three, four minutes. And then there's a shorter stint of like, what, two minutes or so between either at the end of the third or beginning of the fourth where AD generally sits as well. That's the second chance to to get Gabriel in the game. Or if you do want to get Bamba in the game, Maybe you stick him in then and then have him overlap with AD before or after AD sits. And I like Bamba alongside AD as some extra room protection, some spacing, allow AD to continue operating offensively as a five, but defensively, you could potentially use him as that four. So I, I that's if, if you were to play Bamba, I think more of his value add is playing him alongside Anthony Davis or alongside Wenyan Gabriel. Um, if you're just going to pick one of them, I'd, I'd go Wenyan. And again, we only saw a minute. So we're we're kind of, you know, we've broken the ice. We've gotten a little bit more exposure to it. I, and we know the, the coaching staff is in some way open to it. And we didn't see anything that makes me think that they're going to say, oh, you know what? Well, that didn't work. So keep an eye out for more of that. From a matchup standpoint, I'm pretty pleased. I think Reeves done a great job on Bain. AD on Tillman with the two big lineups has allowed him to defend the rim really well as we've covered I have no problems with how the Lakers are matching up. I think even like Beasley, when he's out there, he's guarded Kennard just fine. Like, I don't see anyone that's just getting crushed in their matchup and think like, oh no, we need to change this. There were times Vando, well, okay. So Vando, he had some steals. He had some blocks. He had five fouls and he was getting blown by by Jaw. Again, in the two games Jaw has played, he has been beating Vando a decent bit. But because you have that really good rim defense from AD, you end up being in great, you know, overall fine shape. Schroeder did a better job screen navigating. Um, I I would like to see, we still really haven't seen it. If there are job minutes that don't include Bain, I would like to see Reeves potentially get an opportunity on, on John Moran. He has been like the, what, the sixth or seventh most frequent guy guarding him thus far, which is pretty low. So maybe some potential opportunity there, but you're doing fine as long as AD's able to continue defending the rim. The point of attack defense isn't as important against a team that isn't able to really run five out. And then the last topic I want to talk about is, do I have concern with the big lead that we saw in this game slip away? Lakers at one point were up 29, then it dipped and it dipped and it dipped, and they ended up winning by 10. But I'm not concerned with that. I'm not upset about that. I understand that for a number of reasons. 
One thing is the rubber band effect. This is something I you also saw me if you're you're following my Twitter quote retweet a tweet from uh, Mike. What's his last name? Bowie, uh, who runs Impredictable, the NBA website that has uh, they're they're the ones that calculate the win probability added and they look at win probabilities in game. And he tweeted out how team performance relative to expectations changes based on what the score is based on the time of game. When a team is up a bunch of points, let's say 29 in the first quarter, from that point moving forward, we tend to see the team that's up underperform a little bit. And we see, tend to see the team that's way down overperform a bit. And we, we, we saw this materialize in the game as the Lakers were less organized. They were running more freelance. They are running more ISO. We saw guys jacking shots up. We saw Dennis jack up a quick three. We saw D'Lo jack up a quick three. We saw Beasley see finally an opportunity to get a shot up and take it. It wasn't a great shot. Guys taking shots that they otherwise wouldn't take and the offense in general being less organized. And we know that when the Lakers offense is more organized, it's better. We know that it's been that way all season. It's, you know, ceiling's higher. The floor is higher with the new personnel, but that's been the way of the world for the Lakers this whole year. So from a behavior, from a process approach standpoint, when you're more in charge, you, you know, let go of the rope a little bit. Guys get their own a little bit more. They, they, they put shots up that, you know, if it's a tight game in the fourth quarter, they probably wouldn't be taking. And so we saw some of that rubber band effect in play. Another element of this is like the Lakers, they're, they're not, they weren't 29 points better than Memphis yesterday. Even when they were up 29, they, you know, LA's defense was good. Their offense was good. Memphis wasn't 29 points worse. They were underperforming their shooting and that regressed. And the Lakers shooting regressed a little bit. So, you know, you're going to see fluctuations and variation over time. The like true edge the Lakers had was not a 29 point edge. So we saw it dip a bit as the sample size grew. So that's understandable. And then on top of that, the process side of things flipped a little bit and Memphis was outplaying the Lakers for a little bit in the first quarter and then into the second quarter. They just, they did. They outplayed the Lakers. And then the Lakers, you know, had things in halftime. They talked about, they fixed, they went into the second half, they took control again. And then in the fourth quarter, we again saw the Lakers offense falter a bit. But the reason we did, and, and this was pretty obvious watching, was because they they sat on the ball for like half the quarter. They'd bring the ball up across half court. They, they, well, okay, they'd walk the ball across half court and then they'd stand still and then they'd wait for, you know, until they're eight on the clock and then they'd try to run something. And when you're up a bunch, limiting opportunities, limiting possessions makes sense. The opponent has fewer opportunities to come back. If you do it too early, you are lowering your offensive effectiveness to a point where, you know, it comes at your detriment. Whenever you're killing clock, I expect you to be slowly giving up the lead. It's just a matter of doing the math of like, can, you know, is there enough time left for the other team to realistically come back? And the Lakers decided there wasn't. And they sat on the ball. They were less effective offensively, but they killed possessions. There were extra shots, extra chances that Memphis didn't get to take because LA took their time. When we look from a game control standpoint at the expected win probability for the team, at the start of the fourth quarter, the Lakers had a, let's see, 99% chance to win the game. Went up 20. At one point, it got cut to, let's see here, when it got cut to 10, it was still a 99% chance to win the game because there were like two minutes left, three minutes left. Uh, Throughout the whole third quarter, the win probability fluctuated between 90, started at like 91, then 95, and then it was between like 95 and 98, 99 for like the whole third quarter. By that fourth, when Ellie was sitting on the ball, there just, there realistically wasn't enough time for Memphis to come back to win. So it was okay that the Lakers offense was kill 20 seconds and then make something happen for the last four. So I'm not worried about that. I had, I don't think that has any translation to next game. That's just the Lakers understanding time and score, sitting on the ball, keeping control of the game. When you look at their like game control and the win probability for LA, winning by 10 over Memphis in the fourth quarter, they had more game control than when you look at Miami's 22-point victory over the Bucks. where in that game, it was more of a game early fourth quarter, and then late, Miami really pulled away. LA was 
ahead enough that they could just sit on the ball. So I'm not worried. People getting upset about it, like that's that's fine. I, I disagree with you. I don't think it matters for next game. I don't think the fact that Memphis was able to score a couple more points and cut the lead gives them any momentum heading into game four. You controlled the game. You were not in danger. And so I, again, am happy. Defensively, comprehensively, the Lakers did a great job. It is on Memphis to make adjustments. Offensively, the Lakers did a great job. There are a couple areas that I want to see them make some adjustments. But they won the process battle on both ends of the court. They won the process battle from a three-pointer standpoint. They did a pretty good job getting out and... uh, Let's see here. I want to I want to pull up some of these kind of special team stats. Points in the paint were 50-50. Second chance points, the Lakers had an edge. Fast break points, the Lakers had an edge. They had a couple more turnovers than Memphis. Some of those late when when the game was out of reach. From an offensive rebounding standpoint, this is an area I thought the Lakers would do better. They were tied from a free throw standpoint. An area I thought the Lakers would. Oh no, I'm sorry. Hang on, I'm looking at the wrong game. <laughs> My bad. My bad. That's why I was like, these numbers don't look right. Uh, Lakers had an edge in free throws. They had an edge in points in the paint. They had an edge in second break points. They were outscored by one in fast break points. They had an edge for most of the game. And then and then Memphis got some late. Points off turnovers, Lakers had a big edge. They had more steals. They had more blocks. They had fewer turnovers. They lost the offensive rebounding battle, 18-11, to 11, interestingly. I thought that was, that was an interesting element of this game. And we saw it pretty spread out for Memphis. They had... Three, six, nine, like nine of the 10 guys that played for them had an offensive rebound. They did a pretty good job crashing, crashing the glass. Uh, Tillman had four, Morant had three, lots of guys with two or one, everyone else with two or one. And so just boxing out one through five, whether that means getting a body on your guy or just looking at him, making sure he's going back to play transition defense, you know, and then playing for a long rebound. You need to have better behavior from a Lakers side, cleaning up on the boards, should be a simpler fix and should be something that if we do see the personnel move, they'll be in better position to to contest. But you're winning just about everywhere else. So I'm really happy with this performance. Again, I think it was comprehensive. The Lakers play tomorrow. They are favored by four and a half points at this moment against Memphis. It'll be a 7 p.m. Pacific tip at home. I would expect the Lakers to be fully healthy and available. And if they can take care of business, win as they're expected to win. Go into Memphis with a 3-1 lead with uh, three opportunities to win one game. So you got to feel pretty good. Memphis has a whole lot on the table to try to fix. And as the series now shifts to instead of having multiple days off between games, you only have a day off in between each game. That's less practice time. That's less time to brainstorm. That's less time to get stuff installed. And the fact that the Lakers are going more into the rapid fire round of the series with as many tactical advantages as they have, I think bodes really well for them. It's going to be hard for Memphis to go into game four and solve a dozen tactical problems and make a dozen adjustments. They might pick a couple and then the Lakers can respond to those couple. Um, So LA is just uh, like, there's an aggregate effect of this. You're building on the existing advantages and Memphis taking a little bit too long to fix some of these things has lost them games. And then, put them in a really tough spot here to try to come back. So if you don't shoot well, or you play sloppy, you don't execute well, or you, you know, you're not prepared you get out coached. This could be a two, two series in Memphis regains home court. LA needs to defend home court. That's going to be critical. And we will be here with you to talk about that and cover the game live in the playback stream at playback.tv slash Lakers watch party. Please check that out. Even if you're just with us for five, 10 minutes, Appreciate everyone who's able to stick around um, monetarily. If you're here, if you're logged in and you're there for five minutes, that helps us out. And I've had multiple people DM me and say, hey, you know, love the streams. It's been fantastic. I actually watch on my big screen TV and just use you guys for the audio. I'm able to pause my TV and sync it up and it's perfect. I love to hear that. I've got no problem with that. That works too. You don't even need to be logged in to do that. And when I say logged in, I mean logged into a TV subscriber um, your you know Hulu Live, your League Pass, whatever it is. So check that out if you're not already. Check out the Discord. We got a lot of fun stuff going on in there. Want to shout out friends of the podcast: TJ Timotaji, Zach Harris, Q Daddyo, iPod Shuffle, Miguel, T Shuttleworth, Omar, Roy, Abdul Rahman, Keneal Mason, Doppel, and Romario, all for living the high life with us in the owners box. Want to shout out the courtside and lower bowl crews as well. 
I'm gonna get out. I, I did one uh, Q and A pod. I wanna it's, ask for questions here for in a sec for for our next one. Uh, lots of content coming. It is playoff time. I am home from my travels, and that means I will be available to get more streams and video breakdowns and podcasts and spaces up. Again, check us out with the watch parties. That's all I've got today. Thank you for stopping by. Let's go Lakers. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.